when somebody comes to me and they said, tell me about being an entrepreneur, what is it like? I think realizing it's a marathon, not a sprint. You need to give yourself grace. It's going to be a journey and you're not signing up for an overnight success. This is something that is going to be 10 years, 15 years of consistent daily, weekly hard work, getting up and getting excited to do it again and persevere. Welcome back to another episode of Influencer Business, the playground for brands and creators. I'm your host, Austin Munhofen. Y'all, I am so glad you are here today. I am very excited for today's episode, a conversation with Molly Feening. Molly is the co-founder and CEO of Red Clay, a fast-growing Southern food business crafting delicious hot sauces, hot honeys, and specialty salts. And when I say fast-growing, they have grown three to four times year over year in gross revenue these past three years and have rolled red clay out into stores like Fresh Market, Whole Foods, Publix, Food 52, and more. Incredibly impressive. And get this, Prior to Red Clay, Molly was the co-founder and co-CEO of Babyators, one of Forbes' 100 most promising companies and the leading sunglasses brand for babies and kids with four plus million pairs sold. So no big deal. <laughs> Molly, needless to say, is a huge inspiration for me. And I am thrilled that she's here to share her experience and advice for the marathon that is starting and successfully growing a product-based business. But of course, before we begin, I want to tell you more about our season sponsor who makes bringing you awesome free content like this possible. CJ. CJ is the affiliate network of choice for influencers and content creators. Whether you're looking to earn long-term residual income from your favorite brands or you want more opportunities for sponsored content, CJ offers an easy-to-use, supportive solution with both the tools and the dedicated experts that help set you up for lasting success. One of the best parts about CJ is all the data that you have at your fingertips, the data to help you plan and optimize your content based on what's performing. And you actually have access to the same data as the brands, which leads to better decisions and even stronger partnerships. So highly encourage you to head over to cj.com slash trove to learn more. And without further ado, let's welcome Molly to the podcast. Molly, welcome to Influencer Business. Thank you, Austin, for having me. It's so fun to be here. I'm so excited to have you here because I truly feel like I cannot go a week without seeing Red Clay on Instagram or in my inbox somehow. Uh, So it's true. It's very true. Last night, um, I was eating the uh, hot sauce. I was dipping it in um, sweet potato fries. That's it. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. My midnight snack. It would have been better if I heated up the fries because I don't really think cold fries are great. But again, (laughs) midnight snack. So you do what you got to do. And the honey made it a lot better. I love it. No, that hot honey is... um uh, is really interesting, especially because um, hot honey itself is such a new food trend that I think people don't know how to use it. And so part of our job is really showing the wonders of, of the different food pairings that, that the you know, ingredient itself offers, you know, take red clay out of it. Um, and so that's sort of a fun part of the job that my team has. That's really interesting. And I could totally see that because I even asked my husband, who's the cook in our house during this season of life, and who like controls all the condiments and how we <laughs> we use them to a certain extent. I was like, what can I put this on right now? And he's like, do the sweet potato fries. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Anyway, but before we get into red clay, which we surely will, I always like to start out by hearing more about our guest and you, Molly, and your background and backtracking before red clay, before the exciting mm-hmm. baby eaters, which we'll get into. Um, wh- where did Molly come from? Where was Molly two decades ago? I love it. So I was born, born and raised New York City girl um, and went to college in Boston and Harvard and studied engineering and computer science. And my dream was always to either be a wizard or a spy. And I didn't have magical powers, sadly at least not discovered yet. And um, so I so I wanted to go into international security and um, as it related to technology and the role of the internet kind of impacting all of that. So I went to back to uh, IBM, not back to IBM, I moved back to New York to work for IBM right out of school 
um, and then ended up kind of back at Harvard studying the role of internet and international security um, and re-met my, you know, my future husband um, who went to college with me uh, at a party in DC, probably four or five years after college as I was on this journey in tech and um, had just moved to DC for a job. And within four months we were engaged and I was, living in a rural military base in Mississippi because he's a fighter pilot for the Marine Corps and um, knew we were committed to 10 years sort of active duty in the Marines from that point on as a family and realized then I, in order to kind of work, I had to take something that I could kind of pick up and move with me every six to 18 months with the military. And thus I would become an entrepreneur. Um, and not have more traditional sort of corporate ladder be based in one location um, with a headquarters sort of a job. Um, and our first foray into that was babyators. And so I've been doing babyators about 10 years. Um, and that was sort of where I cut my teeth in the, in the CPG, the consumer product goods space. Wow. Now I'm familiar with babyators because I have, I don't even know how many pairs of babyators with my two kiddos, but for those who are not familiar with Baby Aiders, what is Baby Aiders? So Baby Aiders um, is a children's, so it's a leading baby and children's sunglasses brand. Um, like I said, we've been doing it about 10 years and we've sold 4 million pairs over the life of the business. We retail in 45 countries, including great partners like Nordstrom and Dillard's and Saks and Bye Bye Baby um, and uh, Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, Neiman's before it kind of restructured and, and went bankrupt, but um, lots of awesome retail flags. Um, and the whole premise came about with this idea of my husband sort of being an aviator. Um, I would see all the adults, the military actually issued shades for the pilots to protect their eyes in the sky and the planes. And these pilots' children would be sit, sit, sitting on the ground waiting for the planes to land, watching, squinting at the sun, complaining that they couldn't see the jets. And I made a kind of note to my husband, wasn't that a little ironic? And he was like, well, we should make them and call them babyators. And I giggled at the name. Um, and we thought, huh, maybe there's, maybe there's something here besides a cute name. So uh, two friends of ours from college, the four of us, um, they were consultants in Atlanta at McKinsey and Bain and came at it from a very kind of market analysis standpoint. So we launched with a survey to get a sense of if there were a unique gap in the space. Um, we discovered that there was. And about six months later, we, we launched Baby Eater Shades in, um, in 2011. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. How how did you send out the surveys? Who did you send those to to find out that market gap? So we have a friend who owns sort of a survey business um, where you can pay a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, depending on how big a survey you need it to be. And they can target the demographic you were looking for. So knowing that the consumer is often the, the mom in these families in the situation, at least in, in both of our families, um, we targeted sort of you know, moms of a certain age. So moms sort of probably between 25 and 44 um, and ask them about, you know, what was out there that they liked? What have they purchased before? What was out there that they didn't like and why? And we discovered that we could do something kind of in that sweet spot price range above the cheap, impulsive, you know, let cartoon licensed shades at the counter at Walmart and not Gucci Jr. that are $85 to $200 for your kid. And so we discovered that $20 to $45 price point was really kind of our sweet spot and really wanted to make them durable because the number one complaint was that they break. Um, and so we actually made ours out of a plastic-free rubber and made it um, tested it as three, four times, make it as, as safe as a chew toy, knowing it's going to be in babies' mouths, on their skin, um, and then finally, the the number one complaint was that they get lost. And so we kind of differentiate ourselves in the marketplace using this data from these moms even before we launched around what if we replaced a pair 
if we're lost or broken, not just broken. And we launched with what we called our lost and found guarantee, where we would replace one pair within a year of purchase. Um, and what's so neat about that is actually it offered this moment for press to latch on to something with our brand. And, and we get people speaking more about our guarantee and our celebrity following. Those are the two things than anything else, any other article ever written about about, about baby eaters. We always pitch these stories like, let's talk about sun safety for kids' eyes. There's, you know, the retina aren't fully formed, or let's talk about best friends working together or married couples working together. And, and press comes to the table and they say, tell me about this crazy guarantee that you do. Or the Kardashians and Justin Timberlake really wore them. Like, can we talk about that? <laughs> you know? And so you just have to kind of go with what the press and, and the people want to hear, I guess. Absolutely. And I have to imagine it was probably a little scary when you thought of developing this uh, replacement lost and found kind of guarantee program, because as a business owner, in my mind, one of the things that I probably be thinking is, oh gosh, I don't want to do that because what if I have to replace, you know, X number of pairs and that's, you know, a loss in revenue. So can you walk me through, I'm so curious, the decision uh, to do that in terms of, yeah, this is worth it or, you know, the business decision to do that? Sure. Well, you know, I think the business decision off, off the bat was listening to customers um, where they where they were, meeting them where they were and kind of heeding that feedback. So I think, you know, a lot of brands, as they grow, make the mistake of, of not having that dialogue with their engaged customer base. And then if they do seek feedback, they might not act on it. And I think what I've learned in 11 years of, you know, working in the product space is the importance of seeking customer feedback and then actually acting on it and going back and showing them you did. So you're building trust there and continuing that. And, and those people, the people who do redeem our guarantee are some of the most vocal supporters and advocates, brand ambassadors for baby eaters. So they're out there talking about this cool pair that they just got for free. Um, and so we would like more people to recoup it than, than, than who do, you know? And, and of course there are people who try to take advantage of it. So we'll flag certain accounts that clearly are false asking for seven, eight pairs when they should be asking for one pair. And so we have to deal with that, but it's worth it in the long run because the ones who do take advantage of it are such great brand supporters. Um, but but it, to, to be honest, it's not as many as you would think. Um, one of uh, my partner's business school professors, when we launched, he called it the irrational offer because he was like, it sounds really crazy. You think everyone's going to take advantage of it. But when it comes down to it, it's something that people entices people to buy or get someone talking about it, but they don't remember to actually kind of do the redemption when it comes down to it. The irrational offer. Mm -hmm. I like that. <clears throat> Throwing out another term. And that was a that was a great background, by the way. Um, <laughs> we went deep right off the I, bat. We went, I love it. I love it. I'm not good with small talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let's just get right to the nuts and bolts of it all. <laughs> That's perfect. I love that. I, I want to lastly connect the dots between, well, we'll get more into red clay, but you were in, did you say Mississippi for the stint? We were. Our first station when we started dating, my husband was based in Meridian, Mississippi at the MCAS air station there. Um, and we were we lived there for three months before I moved to um, Virginia Beach for our next station where we live. You know, so we have a whole all I just basically a, a trail across the south with the Marine Corps. Got is that how you all landed in Charleston with the Marine Corps? So we landed in Charleston because my husband is from South Carolina. Um, and I married a Southern boy and what I, we have two sons ourselves. And so we really wanted to raise them with that Carolina, like outdoorsy camping, um, fishing, sailing, hunting lifestyle that Ted grew up in. Charleston is sort of the city for me, um, where I like somewhere where I can walk to get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. And there's interesting people and delicious restaurants and, progressive thinking, um, and then South Carolina as a state for my husband. So that's, that's how we landed in Charleston. And it's, it's wonderful. It's such a great community and, and lifestyle for, for us and our children. Charleston is a very hopping city. We, we can get more into that uh, later. But um, 
something. And just to kind of set the stage for our listeners, one of the things I'm so excited to have you on for is um, to talk more about and to give insight into these people who are starting product-based businesses in a time that does have some uncertainty with it, you know, with our, with the pandemic. I mentioned this before, but I was reading an NPR article not too long ago called The Great Resignation. And it was talking about how people are leaving their jobs in search of more money and more flexibility and more happiness. And a record number of workers quit their jobs in April. I think it was something like 4 million. And there's a lot being written about this right now. And I do think that, you know, the pandemic put a lot of things into perspective and we are seeing this flight um, because of the perspective that was given during such an uncertain time. And one of the outcomes of this is a lot of people, a lot of women that I've even seen start product-based businesses. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that you are such a wonderful person to to um, to hear from when it comes to maybe a lot of the questions that they have when they don't have a kind of business background, marketing background, similar to you. You, you had a computer science background. You wanted to be yeah. an international spy. So that was, that <laughs> was a <true>. pivot. <laughs> Um, it is. And I, I think that, you know, that article is really interesting. I think that trend is really interesting and it speaks to sort of the macro feeling around, you know, facing a global pandemic and facing kind of the, this upheaval of the world, right? Where um, now there's an opportunity to live wherever you want to live. You're not tied to have to sit in an office um, in a big city, if you don't want to anymore, you can you can make the life you want. So there's that flexibility from the remote work standpoint. And then I also think there's this, this question of like sense of purpose. And um, we have one short, precious life. And what are we going to do with it? And I think when you're up against something like a hundred year plague flu virus, um, you're like, OK, my life is short. And. And how would I want to spend it? And so I think that there's, that's sort of, for me, a, a, a positive trend through all of this hardship and sadness. So I'm really kind of interested to see what comes of it. And specifically, you know, you know, you and I both are really interested in sort of female entrepreneurs and, and women working. And so, you know, females, you know, tend to thrive as entrepreneurs and actually are better entrepreneurs and better kind of leaders of, of, of small teams and these growing product-based businesses. And so um, I'm really excited to see what all these women kind of come up with and do. We have something so exciting to share with you. Gush and Grow, who are partners of Trove, are coming out with a course, a course for influencers and content creators, all about how to land paid brand collaborations and partnerships, how to land those with authenticity, with integrity, with confidence, and do it effectively. The thing that lights us up the most at Gush and Grow is helping our clients' dreams come true as solopreneurs. And oftentimes that includes partnering with their dream brands. So we've turned our most popular workshop into a course, making it widely available so that you can land your ideal paid brand collabs and partnerships. It is the most comprehensive course we've created for the best value. And if this is of interest to you, highly, highly encourage you to go to gushandgrow.com slash courses to get on the list. Okay, let's talk about Red Clay and its genesis. How did Red Clay start? How did Red Clay start? Okay, so I... Um Red Clay started when I was pregnant with Fox, our second son, who is now almost six. Um, all I wanted that pregnancy was oysters and dirty martinis, and I could have neither. <laughs> so our first date out to my after baby, my husband took me to our favorite oyster bar in town in Charleston, and we ordered oysters and got my martini, and I was a very happy camper. And the bartender came over and said, do you want hot sauce with your oysters? And I said, you know what? I'm actually not a hot sauce person. And he's like, this is different. Our hot sauce is made perfectly to pair with an oyster. Our chef ages it in bourbon barrels in his garage. You have to try it. So he sold me on it. And 
I tasted it and I turned to my husband. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever had. And I don't even use hot sauce. And this is the best thing I've ever had. And so I asked my husband to go back into the kitchen and just shake this man's hand who made it and tell him if he ever wanted to bring it to market, you know, call us. Two weeks later, I think we gave 10 or 15 grand or something like this to to help Chef Jeff, now my partner, launch and incorporate Red Clay. Um, and we were very much hands-off, silent founders uh, or silent equity for a small little sliver of the business for four years while I was continuing to grow Baby Eaters and Foxy was so little. And then at 2018, Baby Eaters was now eight years old and really didn't need me in the same way. And I had read about Sir Kensington's ketchup and how it grew up to something like 17 or 20 million in revenue and sold for 140 to Unilever and everything it, it, it was in ketchup and how it differentiated itself. Thoughtfully crafted, higher quality ingredients, beautiful branding, millennial consumer. We were, Red Clay was in hot sauce. And so I saw this opportunity to take it from a beautiful, well-loved cult Charleston hot sauce, which Jeff had built for four years. It was on all the right restaurant tables and it was everyone's favorite locally to scale it beyond the city and take it national to grocery and, um, you know, online on Amazon and our website. Um, so genuinely came out of a love of the product, which is different with baby than from baby eaters, which came out of a cute name. So first it was like, we have this brand name. We love it. It makes us giggle. Let's now do the research. Red clay was, we have this sauce that the world needs to know about because it's freaking delicious. And what do we do from there? <laughs> How do we scale that? Um, so it's interesting. There's all these different ways where you, you know, you can start kind of the, from the ground running with the product based, product based business. So that is fascinating. And you're, you are very right. There are a lot of different ways you can come at from a, the product is existing and let's, you know, scale it and make it bigger and maybe even roll out some more, you know, family suite of products that complement it. Versus a, hey, this is a problem. I see a need. I need to fill this need. And before that, do some more research to validate that this need actually exists to the extent that I think it does out there. So you're right. There are a lot of different ways to to come about um, creating a product-based business. So once you decided after four years of being a silent partner in Red Clay and come back in being a not silent part, like what does that look like? How did you kind of put your, roll yourself back into the business in the way that led to the CEO role? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question because um, basically I had read the article about Sir Ken's and saw an opportunity. So I just, you know, initially just started with some, some conversations and research. And I think in the beginning, it's just getting yourself informed on the category and the space and the industry. And I drove up at the time, my partner, Jeff had left Charleston and gone to Greenwood, South Carolina, near where his in-laws live. Um, Cause he then had three babies and still the day, the day job working as a chef. So he, you know, wasn't interested in kind of the day-to-day role of CEO. He, you know, when I pitched this idea of taking a national, he said, great. Like when I pitched it, I actually did not even think of myself to be CEO. I was like, Jeff, we need to take this national. Look at this opportunity. I turned to my husband, I actually said, I said, Ted, you need to step in and like take this national. (laughs) You know, like I'm busy. And he's like, I like my job. Like I I don't want to do this. So I was like, okay, well then I think I might do it. So I, I drove up to Jeff and sat down and we talked and he was like, I want to make the sauce. I'm the chef. I want to make the products, but I don't want to be CEO. And I'd love you to step in and do it. And so I took more ownership of it, took a little more equity for, to justify kind of playing that active role and started on day one on the condition that he let me, you know, as someone who cares a lot about branding and the look, feel, voice of a, of a brand. That's really sort of my sweet spot. And what I think I know or do best as a CEO is like sort of having the brand consistency tell a voice to the consumer and have it be about finding your tribe and then that kind of conversation or communication with your tribe as you grow. And so everything from emails to labeling to your website to color palette to font to voice need to kind of tell a consistent story that kind of speaks to the brand and your consumer. And so I 
the the number one kind of condition was like a rebrand. So new website, new labeling, um, kind of updated voice, more modern voice. Um, and we did that in September of 2018 and relaunched in October. And I think early November, Jeff and I drove up to the headquarters of Fresh Market with a PowerPoint and one bottle of sauce. And everyone else had like sales brokers and rolling bags of stuff and like teams of people. And we sat down in front of this buyer and we just were like, this is us. And this is how we're different from everything that's out there. And, um, Dwight and Katie, that were the two category managers at the time for hot sauce. Katie Kirshner is still someone we work with regularly at the fresh market, took a risk on us and they scaled us to every door. They were our first global account. A year later, we got two regions of Whole Foods. A year after that, um, you know, uh, 1200 doors through Publix. And so really kind of baby steps. But but that first moment was the one account taking a risk on us because it's always the hardest to get that first one. Um, and so to Fresh Market's credit, they took that risk on our cold pressed fermented hot sauce um, because of the, the, the branding and then because the flavor and sauce was there to back up what we promised. What an awesome story. You never forget that first person to say yes for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you never forget that. Um, I do have to say, I just wanted to comment on what you said about branding. I think you nailed it. I think the branding visually, the the tone, the visual aesthetic, the visual vocabulary, how I imagine you want people to think and feel about your product. I totally see that consistently through all of your different platforms. Definitely, definitely think you nailed that. The other question that I have as you were talking is, did you intend for this to be D to C and in retail stores? Was there kind of a vision for how you wanted to share the product or were you just kind of going um, all the ways? Yes, there definitely was a vision and a strategy to make it multi-channel. Um, and that's something I probably learned through Babyators. When we first launched Babyators in 2010, we thought it was going to be only direct-to-consumer. And we got a press hit really early on um, when Newsweek was still a magazine. They put us in a roundup of the essential new products of the summer. And all of a sudden, after that press hit, four or five boutiques within a day called you know, on, or emailed us through Babyators generic email and said, we want to carry you. We want to buy 30, 50, 100 pairs. And so at that point, we thought, oh, okay, well, maybe we will sell to wholesale because there's a sale to be had and we want to make you know some money and it's harder to, to sort of, you know, it helps basically kind of people encounter the brand in different, in different places, in different ways, really. Um, and so when we scaled Red Clay, I knew I wanted to have something that was a giftable moment in a beautiful box um, on our website. And that's a different experience than buying it at the grocery store. It's something you can send to your favorite hot sauce lover in your life, your dad, your mom, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and also have it at kind of where people might traditionally think of shopping for hot sauces like a grocery store. Um, and and then the third channel for us, or the third leg of the stool, um, I, you know, was restaurants and hospitality. And obviously we had to pivot a little bit through COVID because um, we had estimated about a third of our revenue for 2020 to be restaurants and they closed down to zero, um, which was definitely a stress point last year. But I believe long-term in hospitality and food and beverage and industry. And that that's really how we started and how we, it sustained us for the first five years. And so we did our, our best to kind of help support the local restaurants at Charleston where we could, but now seeing them come back and wanting to kind of scale um, with the right restaurant partners and bar partners as we're launching our drink, drink salt collection too. Yes, the drink salt. I'm so excited for that. I like that you said... Uh, meeting customers where they're at because not all customers are online. There are plenty of people, especially when you get into, I think, different generation brackets who like the in-person shopping and, you know, that that kind of interaction. I also love that you you did full circle, like your roots were in, you discovered it in the food and beverage world hospitality world and you stayed in that world that is your third leg of the stool and and that's where you came from and you believe in that and i 
I can't imagine the kind of stress that happened when everything closed and you lost that one third of anticipated revenue. What happened there? Like, did you walk me through that? It was a lot of um, difficult, hardworking days and bad nights of sleep for a few weeks. Basically, you know, I think, you know, one thing about big picture entrepreneurship for me, when somebody comes to me and they said, tell me about being an entrepreneur, what is it like? I think, you know, realizing it's a marathon, not a sprint. You need to give yourself grace. It's going to be a journey and you're not signing up for an overnight success. This is something that is going to be 10 years, 15 years of consistent daily, weekly hard work, getting up out of bed and getting excited to do it again and persevere. Um, Now, there's certainly pros in the sense that every day is different. I'm that person who could not sit at a desk. Um, I cannot have a routine job. I like that one day I'm in a factory tasting honey in rural Georgia. And the next day I'm in a meeting at the Whole Foods headquarters. And the day after that, I'm having a conversation with you. And every day is different. And to me, that's super exciting. But you need to kind of be committed to the good days and the bad days, the successes and the fires. And so that was a couple weeks of a very fiery period. And um, I, you know, I sort of, my personality is one that I kind of thrive in chaos. And so when we're in it and when it is the hard, oh my gosh, are we going to die? I actually kind of get into the weeds and I'm just like, go. And then three, four weeks later, when we've gotten over the hill, then that's when I break down. <laughs> when people are breaking down and there's the fires burning, I'm the one that's like grabbing everyone out of the fire and like getting them, but I'm not sleeping and I'm doing too much work. And, and then I'll need to kind of turn it off and go to a spa and like decompress and recompress. Right. And so in those moments, my head, we had, we paused a lot of partners. We paused our third party ops team. We paused PR for a few months. We basically did not know where cash was going to come from. You know, if, you know, our goal for the year was a million in revenue. So 300,000 was going to be restaurants. We didn't know where that was going to come from. And so we had to make sure we didn't keep spending the cash we had. So my head of sales and I overnight cut 50,000 a month out of expenses and my head of sales stepped in as ops and it was just lean and mean. And we, 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 you know, really sort of, first of all, cut cash spend. Secondly, I expedited a capital raise. So I knew I was going to have to raise money by the end of the year. So I started a preparation to take money sooner, not knowing what the economy was going to look like at the end of the year, needing that cash. You, you know, I think in, in retrospect, I probably had three months runway. And I think now businesses want to think about, in my mind, six to 12 months runway of cash because this sort of, you know, you didn't, you didn't know, nobody really was prepared for obviously a global pandemic. And now we realize we have to be. <laughs> um, and then the final thing I would say is pivot and, and try new things. And so what we did and what ended up being the successful moment for us was Again, not sleeping, wondering what's going to happen. We took all those the, the dollars and the samples we were going to send to restaurants and started sending them to chefs who were working and living at home, to influencers who were all quarantined. And we just sent like, it was I want to say it was Mother's Day. We sent a big Mother's Day gifting to a bunch of female um, entrepreneurs and and influencers. And I'm on the phone with my head of sales and he starts getting all these pings, ping, 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 ping. And I'm like, what, what is that noise? I can't hear anything because just hearing pings on your phone. And he's like, oh my gosh, there are 800 people on my site, right on our site right now on redclayhotsauce.com. And I said, well, that has to be TV. Like you can't have, there's no, there's no one moment that brings 800 people to the site other than television. And I was like, what could that be? And I realized we had gifted Jenna Bush Hager, the Today Show host, the week prior. And I'm like, could it be? And so I run to the TV, turn on Today Show. It's a commercial. And I was like, oh no, did I just miss Red Clay on the Today Show? And a customer had videoed it and sent it to us. And she is holding up two bottles in front of Hoda like this on the, on the Zoom screen saying, this is getting me through the pandemic. 
And we went from, oh my gosh, we're going to die because we won't have cash to, oh my gosh, we're going to die because we've sold out of everything because <laughs> Jenna Bush just shared us on today's show and we had a $45,000 weekend. And it, you know, it was, it was work, work, work because it, out of, out of hardship to work, work, work because of this great success. Um, but it was, um, we ended up meeting our, exceeding our goal of 1 million and hit 1.1 million for the year. And I actually believe that Jenna Bush was that pivotal, pivotal moment for the business um, that she probably doesn't even know the, the impact she had on, on our small Southern brand. Wow. I know, what, right? <laughs> what an amazing story. I can't imagine how much adrenaline and just crazy enthusiasm and disbelief that you must have had at that moment. There was a lot of dancing around the living room. I think all of us, like my children and my husband, it was really fun. That's, that's amazing. So you also gifted to influencers. Have you continued to incorporate that in your strategy and how? Yes, definitely. And I think every product business needs to think about an influencer strategy. Um, and I, and I also just think like, you know, one comment, I know you mentioned there's, you know, a lot of your audience are people who are starting out a business or thinking about starting a business. And I think for me, I want people to know, number one is nobody knows anything when they start, you know, and I think so much about entrepreneurship is learning talking to people, listening to podcasts like this, trying things that work, what works for someone else not might not work for you. And it's about throwing things at the wall and doubling down on things that work and doubling down on things that are profitable. And so influencer strategy, there is no one right way to do it. I think it's about trying lots of different things. Um, it's something we're exploring right now is, okay, going back to the people who actually were kind of resonant to our consumer base. And so as opposed to just trying lots of new people, we're actually returning to the 10 or 15 people who, when we did share with them, we saw a big customer spike and actually try to go delve deeper into partnerships with the people who we know our consumers connect with. Um, so going deeper with few as opposed to sort of shallow and wide. Um, but that's different than the strategy that we had six months ago, which was let's just gift it to everybody and see what happens. And now we learned, all right, these 10 people brought in $1,000 days. You know, let's go back to them and see if we could share a new product with them or do a video with them or do a recipe with them um, and actually put some dollars behind partnering with them versus just the gift itself. So smart how you seem to be very, um, very nimble in terms of your strategy and specific moments and respond accordingly. But also I love how you listen. You're very, you you listen to what works. You pay attention to what, what, what works. You listen to your consumers. And I think that this, these two characteristics of you, Molly, as a CEO, I have to imagine are are a large um, part of your success, of Red Clay's success. So, okay. So in terms of growth, we've talked about branding, we've talked about marketing and growing. I want to just touch on raising capital because mm -hmm. I think that maybe there's some misconceptions out there that, hey, you have you have to raise capital for a business or um, it's better not to, or it's better to. And what are the rounds and what is it like to raise capital and how do I find investors? And just a lot of big questions around that. And of course, we can't answer them all. But what is maybe the biggest question you get asked around raising capital from another entrepreneur? I think, you know, I, I tend to, you know, with my sort of interest and background, tend to speak with a lot of female entrepreneurs um, and women business owners. And I think, you know, th there are different questions with women and money than, than male entrepreneurs and money because of the unfortunate statistic that a lot of venture goes to men, venture money goes to men. Um, and then also the, the sort of unfortunate societal kind of trend or upbringing from past generations where women talking about hard numbers, women talking about money and finance is not socially acceptable. And that's changing. And I think that that is wonderful that it's changing. 
Um, uh, but in terms of my own experience with capital raising, we have grown Babyators organically through um, a line of credit with a local bank in Georgia and a, a line of credit with sort of a friend and family member, which is just interest-based debt. And so we've never taken outside capital for equity. It's only been sort of debt for inventory. So we will use the line of credit to buy and stock up on thousands, millions of shades in the off season. And then we will pay it down as we sell it because it's such a, um, whiplash cash effect with the seasonal business of having to buy in December and only, you know, we sell 70% of our sales in, um, you know, three months of the year and something like June to August. So that's a business where we've never taken money outside. And then Red Clay with Food and Bed, it's a very capital intensive business. If you're going to work on the grocery channel um, versus direct to consumer, you're paying slotting fees. And so it's, it's quirky in the sense that Whole Foods will, will say to you, we love you. Now, you, you know, we're going to put you on all our shelves, which is a phenomenal opportunity and you want to do it. But that first order, they take a case or two cases or half a case, depending on what you're negotiating, per SKU, per store. Um, and so you end up losing money on that first order, not making money. And so you've bought the inventory and you're never seeing a dollar from it. And so if you're doing that over thousands of doors, you're losing a lot of money. You need the capital to um, both buy the inventory to give it to them, but then also to pay for those fees and promo plans. Um, so we've raised two rounds and we're about to start a third round. We've raised about two point two million and I think I'll probably raise another two million at the end by the end of the year, Q1 next year, which will be our third seed round. Um, and it is hard. It is a full capital raising is a full-time job separate from being a CEO. So you're working one at during the day and you're doing the other at night. Um, it is exhausting. It's draining. I would not recommend it unless you have to do it for a couple different reasons. Um, I don't like the weight of emotionally feeling like people have invested in me and I have to produce an output for them. Um, and the risk of losing their money, um, kind of versus just my own money is, is a, is a, is a layer, um, which is an inevitable layer for red clay, but it's a pressure that, I don't have it, baby eaters, and it's nice to not have it, <laughs> baby eaters. And so there's a weightiness of 40 people who said to me, Molly, I, you're a great operator. I trust you. Here's my 50 grand. Here's my 400 grand. And I now have to do something right by them because I care about them and I care about returning a great um, multiple on their dollars. So there's, there's this added layer of pressure. Um, now some people thrive in that pressure for me, you know, it's, it's both. It's like, it keeps me up and I'm like, Oh no, I really want to succeed for them. Um, but then also it keeps me going, right? You only want to take capital if you know you're going to sell your business. Somebody's not going to invest in that, in you or in that money if you want to own it forever because they want to see that exit in three to five years on their dollars. Otherwise, they can put it in the stock market or they can put it in a money market mutual account or a T-bond and get more money out. So it really has to be a conscious decision to say, in three to five years or seven years, I'm going to sell this company and here's your return. Um, the other thing is, you know, you don't have to take money as equity. You can take money like we did at Baby Eaters through a line of credit in the bank. A lot of local regional banks want to support local businesses. And so I think talking to some other entrepreneurs, if you're looking for inventory lines of credit, where they'll give you dollars on the collateral you have in your warehouse. So how many thousands of dollars of product you have, they'll give you some percentage of that in a debt line for you to kind of roll up and pay down. Um, and then I think you could also go to friends and family for debt and say, you know, I need 50 grand and I'll pay you an interest percentage on that 50 grand and pay you back the 50 grand in a year or two. And so there's different ways to structure debt versus equity um, versus actually selling stock units like we did with Red Claim. Um, I mean, there, we should do a whole nother podcast just on capital raising. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot to it. But I would say. It is, it is a full-time job. It is something that you don't know how to do it until you're in it. 
And, you know, it's one of those things where you can read books about swimming all day long, but until you jump in the pool and start drowning, <laughs> have to swim, that's how you learn. You learn by doing it. Um, and even looking now at sort of another $2 million raise at the end of the year, I feel like I'm at the base of a mountain and I'm looking up at the peak and I'm like, God, I don't know if I can do it again. I got to climb this mountain again. And, and, um, my partner, Jeff said to me, I, I made that comment to him on the phone. He said, I was like, gosh, we're about to start this mountain climb feels lofty. And he's like, you know what, Molly, just worry about your next base camp. What's the next step? Just get to that next level. Don't think about the top of the mountain. Think about every $50,000 check, $100,000 check. That's all you have to worry about. And I think that for me was a really great mindset. Yeah, it's the, and take the big picture and break it down into more bite-sized chunks. Otherwise, it can be so overwhelming to look at ground, you know, base camp zero or ground zero. I'm trying to use the metaphor and I'm not, I'm not really a hiker, so not sure what that is. Either, whatever. <laughs> At the top of the mountain. Yeah. And, it, and that's actually a great metaphor for entrepreneurship too. I think when, when women or people are starting out, they don't know where to begin. They're at the base of the mountain and they're looking at this peak and like, how do I do it? Don't worry about the, the, what happens at the end of the day. What is the immediate next step you need to take? All right. I have an idea. I have a brand name. I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate my company. I'm going to trademark my brand name. I'm going to get one prototype of the product that ups up to my standard. And then I'm going to order the minimum number of quantity available to sell to make sure that people want to buy this thing. And then I'm going to ask for feedback and change it and tweak it and make it better, buy more, you know? And so thinking about every step of the way is just the immediate next step and baby step in front of me. And it makes it much more, um, manageable in your head. Definitely. I think you've given a lot of great advice from, um, you know, thinking about it as a, as a marathon, not a sprint, accepting that you're going to have the good days and you're going to have the fires and just everything in between. I, I seriously could talk to you for hours more, but alas, we can't. So let's move on to the rapid fire, which is one of my very favorite ways to end a conversation. Are you ready for this? Ready. Okay, it's gonna be fun. All right, I want to throw, I think, some new ones in here for you. So you may not be expecting these and neither is the audience. Okay, favorite food or meal? Oh, my last supper meal has got to be a cheeseburger and a dirty martini, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the dirty martini stays. I mean, oh, you mean that or a really big, good glass of Cabernet? Those are my two drinks of choice. Favorite smell? I love the smell of a fire burning outdoors on a really cold night. That's my favorite smell. I try to get candles in the house that actually have that woodsy, you know, masculine kind of like outdoorsy smell. I'm not a floral girl. I don't love the smell of lots of flowers in the house. I like flowers outside, but I like kind of that woodsy fire burning smell. Most used app on your phone? Sadly, probably Instagram. Um, but then I'm trying to cut back on that. And then I would say my clock for my alarms. I use that for like marks from the day and, and morning time. Last Google search. Last Google search. I think it was to a site called Nosh. Nosh is the food and Bev sort of like online job board, leader in the space of news. We're actually being featured as sort of a product showcase on the condiment section. They, they chose us as the, the brand to watch in condiments. So I'm doing a little presentation on Nosh um, later today, which is exciting. Wow, congrats. Thank you. All right. What is the best no you've said in your business? <sighs> the best no I've said. Actually, on the topic of capital raising, I would say you need to be really mindful if you do take money from outside of, of you know, 
as equity, they're, they're, you're basically going into a financial marriage with these people. You need to be able to like them, feel comfortable with them, feel like they're going to honor and respect you and you can honor and respect them. And so I would say no to any money that feels uncomfortable. And so I think I had a couple opportunities to take dollars from people where it just did not feel right. And I, I said, no. Um, even though it was turning down money because I did not want to be in bed with these people for the next five years. On the other end, what's the best yes you've said? I would say the best yes. We have a really amazing team. Um, I have, I like to keep my teams really lean. We have seven people on our team for red, for baby eaters uh, and four founders. Um, and that's 8 million in revenue. Um, year to date or and last year. And my team for Red Clay is six team members and then Jeff and me, so eight total. Um, and we're probably hopefully going to get three million in revenue this year. Uh, every, the yes of hiring those people, we have a top-notch amazing team um, and I could not do what I do without them. Um, hiring for skill sets you don't have. I think about my head of ops, and all he does on the food regulatory side, managing our factories, freight, shipping thousands of pallets across the country to the right distribution centers, things that I could never do. I go to bed just thanking my team and thanking God for them, you know, because, you know, you, you only are as good as the people that you work with. I could not agree with that more. And then lastly, what are you most excited about in this industry or your future? I'm, you know, I am really excited about the journey to to sell and to exit a, a business, not because I'm ready to be done with Red Clay at all, because we don't. We've probably got about four or five more years of very hard work to get it to that level. But I have built a couple of businesses now and I've never exited one. And I have this bucket list dream of like experiencing what that's like. And I want to, you know, negotiate and, and, and sort of review these contracts and do the auditing process and due diligence. And, and like, I, I'm very excited for when that journey comes, um, uh, since it's going to be new for me. I have absolutely zero doubt that will happen. So... <laughs> When that does, tell me what it is like. Or let's have you back on the podcast and you can tell all of us what it's like. It'll be so much fun. Well, Molly, that was it. That was my last rapid fire question. Thank you so much for your time, for your warmth, for your transparency. Very appreciate you and uh, Red Clay and so happy to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing what you do and sharing, sharing all these wonderful stories. We really appreciate it. I hope you found value and inspiration in this conversation today with Molly, who, as you can hear, is an all-around lovely human and total rock star. I learned several things from Molly in this episode and three things, three takeaways, if I had to choose just three, which is so hard because she gives such incredible insight, are these. One, I think that it is a good reminder for businesses to... Um, continue to engage in dialogue with their customers. As Molly pointed out, a lot of brands, as they grow, she's seen make the mistake of not having that engaged dialogue with their customers and then acting on that feedback. That's also really important when they when they capture feedback to actually act on it. The second thing is I really liked how Molly called out all the different ways that you can start a brand. For example, Baby Eaters came from an idea, a fun, catchy name versus Red Clay, which was born from a genuine love of the product. I think that's really important to keep in mind that there are a lot of ways to go about building a, a business. And then thirdly, I just, I had never heard of the irrational offer before. And I am, that stuck with me. And I love the idea of something that sounds really crazy. You think people are going to take advantage of it. But when it really comes down to it, it's something that entices them to actually purchase the product. And the irrational offer, as Molly, as Molly said in their Lost and Found Babyators program, has actually been the feature, the thing that has garnered more press than anything else. And 
is the avenue for which they have some of their most loyal brand ambassadors. So super interesting. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, it is in large part to Pete Crimi and the team over at the Sound Lounge who always make us sound better than we are. And if you did like this episode, please just tap the five stars on your way to the kitchen, on your way, you know, out the car, running errands, whatever you're doing right now, we'd really appreciate it. And then we'll see you next time on Influencer Business. Mm -hmm.